All right. I don't know hardly where to start. Okay. Um, let's go back and let's do a very quick review on context setting. Because I do think that, you know, we've been in this a long time, and I think sometimes we kind of lose focus of what was the context of this book because there are some fundamental principles about doing inductive Bible study that, uh, that I just keep repeating and repeating. And a lot of it is, I know I'm singing, singing to the old choir because you guys have heard it a million times. But for those who are still new in this and are still learning, it's just so important to even remind our, ourselves but to help them come along also. So I just have to come back and, and review some of these points. Setting context helps us to understand who the author is, who his intended audience was and what his purpose is for writing right so that then as we progressively move chapter by chapter through a book we can say well why did he tell us that story why did he give us that historical record what was so valuable about that that pertains to his intended purpose right so let's look at that let's start by looking at our author who is our author it is it Ezekiel, he is a priest, all right, and in exile, all right, he is, he was called to be a watchman, a watchman for God over God's people, right, um, now why, and, and we also know he's a a prophet, correct? I'm just going to add that on here, just as one extra point. Tell me how you see these qualities which God gave to us in his word as essentials for understanding then everything else that comes later. Knowing that he's a priest, he's a prophet, he's a watchman, and that he's in exile, how do those things play into each of these chapters that we've looked at so far? Right. Okay, so are there any specific things that you can kind of just reflect back on that you think, oh, see, because he was the priest, he knew this or he understood that? Probably both. Right, that's exactly right. And the only way he was able to do that is because he was a priest. He'd had that training. So there were certain things that maybe the layman of his time would not have had the insights to, but because he was a priest and had been trained in the priesthood, he understood. Hello, there's a birdie in the house. <laughs> is that you, Don? Oh, it's, it's not Don. Don didn't do it. He's laughing, though. Oh, it's Kathleen. No, it's not Kathleen. I won't say. Anyway, yes, Kathleen, did you have a point? Absolutely. At this point now, so James did a good job. He took us way back to the beginning at the opening where he was able to identify, for instance, those cherubim and the glory of God and correctly identify that it was the Lord himself speaking to him through this vision because of the things visually that he was seeing and he was able to identify them. And a priest specifically trained in the way that he was uh, had the qualifications and the insight to be able to do that. So that gives us that validation sort of, right? He, he saw the heavenly version of what the saints were 
in the temple. That's right. And he, I, and he correctly identified what a cherubim was. And when he described it to us with the wheels and the eyes and the wings and the hands and the, all these different things, it was like, what is that, right? But thankfully, by the time we hit chapter 10, he was able to say, and that is the cherubim, right? And so he correctly identified it for us. Now, Kathleen's taking us and saying he also had great insight because he was a priest into the understandings of the procedures for their temple, right? Why do you think that's significant for where we are now at the end of the book? So he's, in the things that he's saying to us, you think he's making a distinction for us by saying, oh, by the way, let me tell you about, God had showed this to me, and he told me the measurements, and he told me the different kinds of sacrifices they're going to do, and, and, the, and also the priesthood. He even mentioned specifically Zadok and the Levites and how God is going to do something new in that new temple, right? So he made a distinction because of his knowledge about the temples previously, to what this one is talking about, which is future and has never happened. And he's actually saying these things are different. Although he's not saying that, he's saying that, right? Okay. And he pointed us to say that, uh, that, the, that I know that I am the Lord. Yes, okay. So, what, so that leads us into then the author's purpose. That key repeated phrase that we keep saying in here, which is, then you will know that I am the Lord. Right? Mm-hmm. All right. So there's our key, our key purpose, the author's purpose for everything that he's written then in this book thus far is so that we will know when these things happen, then you will know that I am the Lord. So th- let's just finish that out with a, I like to do it this way, dot, 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 because in my own words then, what is it? What is the then referring to? Then. Then what? When I do it, right? When God does it. When, when God fulfills his word or does his word, right? Whatever he has said, he's going to do it. And therefore, once it's done, then you will know I am the Lord. Have you seen in this book at, um, at this point anywhere where God has given... Uh, Ezekiel that kind of power and confidence before the people even of his day because he's fulfilled certain things already did he make some prophecies through Ezekiel and then fulfill them almost immediately yes he did go ahead okay right True, true. So the people would come before him looking for his word. Uh huh. Also, the priests, and, and I'm assuming he was allowed to upright priests when he saw yes. the vision of the abomination before them. Wow. Yes, he did. And I t- and call them on it. Yeah. You know, I think that sometimes what we do know is that Ezekiel would have uh, come into the into the age of his priesthood while he was away in his exile. So he would not have ever actually worked as a priest during the days he was there. So he never maybe necessarily saw all these things himself personally. But when the Lord showed it to him in a vision, and he confronted the people and told them this through the vision that the Lord gave him, did you notice that there was no rebuttal? 
in the scripture. There's no recording of anybody going, well, that's not true. We never did that. The, nobody said that. <laughs> but he, he went through systematically in those visions back in chapter uh, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that area. I can't recall exactly. In 10 and 11, it shows the glory of God leaving. So it would have been 9, 8 or 9. He shows all those abominations that were going on, right? All right. So now then, so the author's purpose is then you will know that I am, uh, or, or, or I should, let me put it this way, the author's theme. I'm going to put this as a th- the major theme, the author's major theme. The author's purpose, a reason for writing, right? We're going to get this on here, too, because I think this is another part of it. Well, absolutely. That's exactly right. Quite, quite honestly, it all comes down to God simply said, you are going to be my watchman, and you're going to speak a word, right? Remember in chapter 3, the Lord came to him, and he said to him, I, I am making you a watchman. And what happens if this watchman does not do his job? What does God say? The blood of those people will be on his head. Right. I, I don't know that I mentioned this to you guys or not in this particular setting, but this is the, the chapter, that chapter 3. That was the chapter that God gave to me when he called me into teaching. I was not real happy about it either at the time because <laughs> all I could think of was all the controversies that maybe potentially the Lord was saying, these are going to be things that are going to happen. These are going to be controversies. But I'm telling you, if you don't tell them, then I'm going to hold you responsible for what you did not do. This is my calling for you and for your life is to speak my word and to teach it, right? So although I wasn't called to be a prophet over Israel, I was called to be a teacher in the house of faith, which is a similar kind of role. And sometimes you have to teach, and people don't always like it, right? And I'm not saying that I'm always right either, because I by no means have any uh, additional uh, insight or great training than any of you, right? That's uh, that's one of the great uh, things that I think gives God the most glory with my call into teaching is that I don't have higher education training. I did not go to seminary, right? I've been trained simply by the word of God and through this method of study, which is so amazing. And I would have to say that if there's any a testimony that gives God glory, it would definitely be my, my being right here doing what I'm doing. So when God called me through this word, I know how it made me feel. And I'm thinking Ezekiel's even higher. That measure of responsibility that was placed on him that Ezekiel you will speak my word to them whether they want to hear it or not right now if you if you don't speak it to them I'm holding you responsible for their blood but if you speak it and they reject it then it's not it's not in your court any longer correct would you say that's a calling that really for the whole household of faith could really embrace it to a measure not that everyone specifically has had that calling I actually had this specific calling I believe I had this specific calling. But I do think that everyone on the whole has a measure of this given to us through entering into faith in God, that we have a responsibility to to tell people what we do know, whatever that is, on whatever level that is, right? And through whatever avenue of, of ministry or through homes, through work, through friendships, whatever it is, we all have that responsibility. 
And if we don't share it, then what have you learned at this point in Ezekiel? How does God view that then when we don't ha- when we have opportunity and we and we keep our mouth shut? Mm-hmm. Oh no. No, no. <laughs> That's so sweet. You're very sweet. She's a wonderful student, by the way. And, and overcoming language barriers and all kinds. I mean, it's amazing. And, uh, and honestly, so many people. I look around this room, though, and I am so impressed that, that the, at the maturity level that most of you are, which exceeds my own, um, that you still are pursuing understanding and relationship with God at this measure and with this amount of discipline that's required in your life. I'm just, I have to say, it just is a testimony of God's spirit working in each one of you. It really is. It's, oh gosh, Heinz. Okay. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Ah, uh, all of you are inspiring. You guys are m- embarrassing me. <laughs> we do. Oh, thank you. Good for you. Yoshiko's my hero. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, you guys inspire me to want to be better and to know more. And even when we have difficulties, like when we have challenges that come up and people are like, well, I don't know if I understand that. I don't really agree with that one. Whatever it is, all those things motivate me to dig deeper, to know more, to try to iron it out. And for me, I think one of the the great things that God has shown me is that my simplistic thinking is really a valuable way of teaching because I can bring it down to that level where, where hopefully everybody can see it. Um, I think if I had a high... Some people just like intuitively pick up the Word of God and they just read it and they grasp it and they just go with it. And you, I'm always so impressed with those people. I mean, my husband can read something once and go, oh, yeah, that's whatever. And I'm like, I just spent three hours upstairs doing that. How did he do that? He just reads it and he gets it, you know? But I do think that, that the, the scripture is so encouraging in that it says to us that if we will search with all our heart, then we will find. And God, his desire is not to hide truth from us. And I, I hear so often with people, particularly with a book like Ezekiel, where they think that, well, why didn't God just say it, you know? But God wants us to pursue him with all our heart. Part of this journey into faith and into the knowledge of God's truths is about disciplining our lives as well. It's not that, you know, it's like chil- like our own children. If you just hand things to them, do they really appreciate and value it? And the answer is no. And with God's word, I think the miracle of, one of the miracles of his word is how all these pieces of the puzzle fit together and ge- develop this fuller understanding of what God's plan is. And if you and I... Um, 
hunger for that, really search for that with all our heart. God gives it. But I, I think it's just part of the process of refining us and purifying us so that we will, you know, uh, it's really a proof, a proof of our, of our faith, of our love for him. It's a testimony to the world. Yeah. All right, let's move on. The author's reason for writing a couple of them. Number one is in that chapter 317 where he says, warn them from me, right? This is what he's doing. He's warning them from me, me, the Lord, right? So that's part of his his point. And you now have to keep that before us as we're looking at Ezekiel, that part of what he's doing here is it's a warning. Why do you call it a warning? What, what have you seen in here that might need us to be warned about? Judgment. That God looks at every individual and every nation. And by the way, I ended up going back and changing one of the titles in, in my um, one of my chapters because I had looked at it from the point of individual uh, judgment, that each one is individually judged. But it's not just each individual, it's also each nation. He will judge each person and each nation. And, well, and tribes, right. But the concept is nation, right? So warn them from me as part of the reasons. And then he says, and concerning God's heart in this, what does God want us to do when we are warned? To repent. He wants us to be warned. The people must take my warning. He wants us to repent. Uh, Because in chapter 33, he basically says, or what's going to happen if they won't? they will have to die. They will have to suffer the consequence of their, of their refusal of my warning. So people must take God's warning. I'm going to put repent on there. Although that word is not actually used in chapter 33, verse 6, but it's, the implication is definitely there. And if not, they're going to suffer, Right? those consequences. I always laugh when I see that word consequences. When my little, when my kids were tiny and Eric was just a baby still, barely talking. And you have little boys especially have, their tongues are bigger than their mouth. <laughs> and so, the, you know, the, the, the <laughs> his little tongue always got in the way and, he, and his sister and him were fighting in the back seat and a one and I and he was just barely talking I couldn't believe this was one of his first words he looked at his sister and he says stop it Nessa or you won't like the consequences <laughs> I went, oh I guess I've used that word a lot <laughs> early motherhood huh Okay, so the title or the theme then of our book is then, that, then You Will Know That I Am the Lord, mm-hmm. right? That's our major theme. And we see that, it's, that the, the Lord wants us to be warned. There are some other sub-themes sub, uh, going on in here that we've looked at. Have you identified some of them pretty clearly in your mind or in your thinking? What are some other things that he's actually hitting on? Yes, that God will vindicate his holy name. So everything we're looking at as we are progressing through this book uh, from the very first chapter all the way through is showing how God keeps implying and often directly stating that he will vindicate his holy name. And why, why must it be vindicated? What has Israel done? Profaned it. And what have the nations done? 
profaned it or scorned it, right? They just reject it. So he, one of the themes is that God will vindicate. His holy name. Okay, so knowing that helps us as we are looking chapter by chapter and going, why is he showing this to us? Because he's telling us, I'm going to vindicate my holy name. And this is how I'm going to go about doing that. Okay, anything else? Okay, in Israel, I will be sanctified by by restoring them. In restoration of them, I will be sanctified. And therefore, I will also vindicate my holy name. It's kind of like... It's like it almost weaves itself together, doesn't it, in that message? So, yes, exactly. Okay, in Israel, God will be sanctified. Um, and there's one more point I think has become especially profound in the last part of this, but it, but having it in my mind and going back last night and re-looking through, it's actually mentioned a lot, a lot more than I noticed the first time through. Um, but it's this idea of the separating. When we look at the temple and how it's built, how there are these certain walls and certain corridors and certain places for certain things. And one of those things we talked about last week was even the garments, that when they wore certain garments before the Lord, then they weren't allowed those to wear those out among the, the common people, right? So there's an additional theme in here that God is saying about, about the need to vindicate his holy name and that how he's going to do that is through Israel. But it's because they did what? They profaned it, right? And he's saying to us over and over through this that, that there's to be a separation between the holy and the, and the common. What is every day? We don't do that well. We certainly do not do that well in our nation today. And one of the things I think is going to be astoundingly um, and completely clear at the end of the age is how distinctive God is going to make those things. He's going to say, this is the holy and this is the common, and you do not mix the two. Why not? Okay. All right. That's right. Okay. Any other thoughts? Right. That's exactly right. So the point is, is that God designed them to be distinctive because in a, it, that reflects who he is. And if we were created by God to bring him glory and we're not doing that because we're rejecting him as the one who is holy and we are the one in need of bowing our knee to that, then we end up profaning him. Because we reject, we walk away. Uh, you know, I think about you know, the Garden of Eden and the rejection of God's law right from the beginning of choosing to eat of the apple of the tree or the fruit of the tree, which God said, don't, don't eat, right? I'm sorry, Kathy, I saw your apple and I went apple. <laughs> See there? <laughs> My brain, just easy, easily swayed. Okay, so we're going to say on here, one of the other things is the idea of discerning the holy 
from the profane. That's how the scripture calls it, profane. But profane simply means common in this context. It's not speaking of something which is unholy, but rather that which is the everyday. In other words, the common meaning us. We're the common. We're the the profane. We're the everyday. God is the holy. But we are to seek his holiness and try to convey that, right? Yes. The separation, will it be like the sheep and the goats? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Oh, 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 at the end of the age. No, that's actually an act of judgment in that particular verse that you're talking about. He's actually executing a judgment because at that time in history is when Jesus returns for that war. And he will come on the earth and then at the end of the war, what's left, then he is going to yet judge. Um, I hate to jump right that far forward yet without, just because I don't, I don't know that everybody's mind is there yet, but does anybody understand what she's talking about, about the separation of the sheep from the goats that we looked at in Matthew? Was it 25, I think? Right. And so what we know is at what time in history is that taking place? That's at the end, right? In the, the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation and at the beginning of God's millennial reign, right? He's going to bring whoever is left upon the earth who did not die during those those seven terrible years and during those particularly the three and a half years of wrath that God will pour out on the earth, anyone who's still living then is, is going to have to come before him and he will separate the sheep from the goat. The fact that he separates the sheep from the goats at that point, what happens to the ones who are considered the goats? They go to eternal destruction. That's death, right? Okay, so what does that leave left on the earth at that moment in history? Only the believers. At the beginning, it's only the believers. Yes. No. No. That's at the beginning of the millennial reign. But what happens progressively through the millennial reign? People are born and and people begin to start and they die and they have all these things. And what happens as time goes by? Some people don't come into faith. And how do we know that? What happens by the end of the thousand years? That's right. There's, a, there's like a, a multitudes of people who come up on the face of the earth and are gathered by Satan to come against Israel again. Unbelievable. But by the end, so would you say over a thousand years, there's probably going to be a lot of people who are again because of choice. What is that? But to me, I'm telling you, my brain is going, really? Really? Jesus is going to live right there in our midst. He's going to rule in righteousness and justice, and yet people are still going to reject. And who is bound for that thousand years? So who cannot be blamed for man's rejection or for man's temptation to, to go away from God? Satan. Well, maybe, but... But, but what we're seeing is that God is showing us that through the binding of Satan for 1,000 years, and yet man still goes astray, some of them, right? The ones who don't choose God, the ones who go astray, they do that by their own free volition. It's their own free will choice, right? And Satan had no influence in that at that point in history. That point in history, so why did God do that? 
What follows the 1,000-year reign? New earth and the great white throne judgment. So when people of that era in particular, well, actually when all of mankind ends up that are out of faith end up before that great white throne judgment because we the church don't go there that's not for us this is for unbelievers this is a throne judgment for unbelievers when they go before god's throne to be judged what will they not have as an excuse that's right flip wilson (laughs) can't flip wilson it the devil made me do it no sorry the devil didn't make you do it No. No. When does when, when do we get the glorified body? At the rapture of the church. And when do we when we come back this week we looked at those verses, right? In Revelation and so forth and when we come back with Jesus on uh, and we're on white horses, right? What are we dressed in? The white, the ra- the righteous acts of the saints. So we are at that point in Having, having been married, we now return, it says, as his bride. Now we're his wife. We're ready to be his helpmate. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Who? No, but who? That's right. Those who went through, who end up coming through at the end of the age, who are still in their physical bodies, I'm going to erase this. Does everybody have this message that Acts begins March 23rd? And the books in class will be in class on that day? How much is the book, Lois? 20 Good. That was, it's cheap. That's good. Cheap compared to usual. <laughs> That's nice. Okay. Yeah. It's inexpensive. <laughs> and it's worth every penny. Look at how much we've learned in this class alone, you guys, really. Okay, we're going to go to the end of the age. I'm going to start down here. I'm going to put, now this is my little kingdom picture, okay? And that's the kingdom of Jesus, right? The, on the 1,000 years. How do you write 1,000? <laughs> H.J. <laughs> Give him the bills. Okay, um, and then after that will be that, that, um, White throne, judgment, right? And almost simultaneous, I almost hate to put it linear because I think it's really a simultaneous event. We get this new heaven and new earth, correct? All right, so... Previous to this, we have a seven-year period called Daniel's 70th week, right? And in particular, this last segment right here is called the wrath of God. That's when God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. So those who survive this time, who don't die during this time, and enter into this segment right here, this is when God separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, at the end of the seven years, and there's this time of wrath, which God pours out on the whole world, right? 
And those that come through, in particular Israel, remember we talked about Israel, how many are going to die during this time frame of totality here? Two-thirds two -thirds of Israel will die. But for here, one-third come through refined. Okay? Of Israel. This is concerning Israel. Two-thirds of Israel, and that, that's in Zechariah. Um, is it 14? It's, anyway, Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 are the three chapters. And I forgot now which one says he's at, they actually, the two-thirds. Does anybody remember that verse? Zach okay, that's right, 7 and 8. Thank you. Okay, good. But you, you did good, Diane. You got me to Zechariah 12. That was awesome. You know what? If you can get that close, you're right in the ballpark area. Once you got in there, you'd be able to find it, wouldn't you? Isn't that amazing how much we've learned? We're getting so smart. Okay. My little dot is she 13, 7. Good job. All right. Thank you. Okay. So this is the sheep and goats separated okay it's whoever comes through this time frame at the end of not being killed now it's time for him to bring these people before him and say who and he says isn't that an interesting new insight about how you view that one passage about who is it that goes into the millennial reign to he says um blessed are you right because you because you blessed me Right? Because you fed me, because you clothed me, because you, you visited me in prison, you gave me water. Which, think about the end times. Giving somebody a cup of water at that time in history, big deal, huh? Because the waters, many of the waters are going to be destroyed. Okay, the wedding feast follows in the kingdom jesus said i will not eat or drink again of this cup until i do it in my kingdom so that the actual feast which is which follows the wedding right that means the wedding's already taken place now they're having the feast that takes place during the millennial kingdom my guess right at the beginning we start with a big feast where he will eat and drink with us correct at this feast there will be guests invited in that issue now you know who the guests are right those who come through this time, who are who are um, not considered the bride of Christ, but maybe who are have a different classification, so to speak, of identity. Okay, but obviously believers. But apparently, there's a distinction between the bride because what does um, Romans chapter eleven tell us? When does God be finish his his agenda, his program with Israel to bring them into this? this place of being restored on the land and being his people, once the fullness of what? Of the Gentiles come in. So in Romans 11, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, we get raptured out. The wedding itself takes place in the heavens. Our works are sent through the fire to be examined by the Lord and then rewards given for them. When we come back with him on white horses, we are now dressed in our, in our wedding garb, our white linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints, according to Revelation. And when we come back, we come back, he says, and now 
how did it say? Now the, the wedding, the, um, the bride has been made ready, right? She's now his bride, not his betrothed. We are his betrothed right now. But at that time, we will then be his, his, his bride. And what does a bride do? What is the purpose of a woman in relationship with her husband? To be his what? His helpmate. Can you see how then when we come back, then we're asked to rule and reign with him as his helpmate? Isn't that cool? We hope. We hope. So I'm hoping right here, rapture. Right in here, right in here. Sometime we get our we because when we come back with Jesus, Jesus returns here, and and we are with him. So the sheep would be ones that have come into faith during that seven and a half tribulation saints. That's exactly right. They're not considered the church. They're the tribulation saints. This is one of the things we were. I was talking with somebody in here maybe it was Eileen um, earlier about there's there seems to be uh, distinctive classifications or kind of groups of people not that faith is any different not that salvation is any different it's all by faith right we know that the promise of the seed is Jesus so he is the literal fulfillment of that so it's still all that that all applies but it seems like in God's economy the way he's going to work out the ages and the way that he's working even in this millennial rain time there seem to be groups of people there's there's israel the nation who gets saved and put back on their land and they're called for some distinctive things are they not what we looked at this week in our homework were what were some things that you learned about the the jews let's flip back there and look at that see if i can find my my uh sheets of I mean, did she not give us a ton of, of work to do on this? Okay, we looked in Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 65, um, and also Ezekiel 45. But we had also done tons in just our other Ezekiel study. But So we know that concerning Israel, one of the things that makes them a distinctive group. So let's just make a list on this, distinctive groups. And I say distinctive in that God makes them distinctive. I'm not doing that. But God says there's this group. And he calls one of the groups Israel, right? He calls another group what? The people of the land or another way of calling that the nations, right? In other words, that would be anyone other than Israel, correct? And then there's us called the what? The church, right? So we know that there's this... Now, even before us, although it's not really addressed in here, who else was there? Old Testament what? Old Testament saints. Okay? So it seems like at least at this point, there's, there's these people that we've been looking at pretty clearly. We also know when we studied Revelation, there's going to be another group of saints. Who are they? Tribulation, Tribulation saints. Uh, the holy ones generally are referring, well, it, context rules for the interpretation on it. So sometimes it's us, sometimes it's Israel, sometimes it's even angels. Sometimes it's the Old Testament saints. Just you, everything will be 
pertaining to whatever the context is speaking of at the time. But what we know holy means, right? Yeah. Um, is that chapter 14? Yeah, is it chapter... Oh, we did? Which one did we do? I can't remember that. Um, it seems like it's Revelation 14, but um, I don't see it in here at the moment. Can I get it later for you? Yeah. Yeah, okay, good. I think it's in chapter 14, though. It's talking about those who are... And also, you see it in Revelation 20, though. Well, we, in the seventh, at the, in, at the end of the war, in chapter 20 of Revelation, a reference is made to them, um, James. If you look in Revelation 20, I don't have that one on my sheet here. I have Revelation 20. He says, and I saw the angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss. He talks about binding Satan. Then in verse 7, it says, the thousand years are complete. Satan will be released. He will come out to deceive the nations. Okay, that's not it. Uh, Where is the one that talks about? Yes, what verse is that? 20, okay, verses 4 to 7. Thank you. So read that for us. Oh, okay. There you go. That's them. Those are, the, those are what are called tribulation saints. Anyone who lived during those days of the tribulation, who came into faith, refused to worship the beast, refused to take the mark of the beast, they come to life and rule with uh, Jesus for a thousand years. So those we call tribulation saints. You see them also, I think, in chapter 14. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. Anyway. Yes. No, that is not. That's the birds of the air that come to eat the flesh of men after Jesus has come and waged war against men on the earth. So when does Jesus come according to Revelation 19, verse uh, 15, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15? When does Jesus do that? At the end of this, it's in the seventh bowl. So Jesus comes to do that. That one is the same one, Ezekiel, I believe it's the same one Ezekiel presents to us where it's the birds that, that come for this supper called the supper of God. I think that, or the, the Lord's table, it's called in Ezekiel. In Revelation, it's called the supper of God, the great supper of God. Both of them speak of the birds of the air coming to eat the flesh. It's the, it's the chapter, was it 37 maybe, something like that, where it talks about Gog. And Magog coming for a war. Nope. Remember, Carol, what we talked about. That's a landmass. That's all it is. There is a war mentioned in Revelation 20 that he calls, again, the land of Gog and Magog come to war against Jerusalem at the very, very end. But the one in Ezekiel where he mentions Gog and Magog, it's just the same people group of Gog and Magog. But that war comes before. And that's Armageddon. Okay? That's right. And that's where the supper of the birds is. It's after Satan is released. Right. So I'm going to put a little 
red mark here and a little red mark here. Both are wars, right? There's one at the beginning and there's one at the end. This war is Armageddon, they call it. It's, it begins to come together in the sixth bowl when they are, the nations, the kings of the nations come and gather for war against Israel. That's what Ezekiel shows us. Let's see if we can find that one. Let me see if I can find the chapter and show it to you real quick as a good review. Okay, seven. That's them. Okay, so there's your other one, James. Write that one down. Revelation chapter seven, not 14, seven. Yes. And that's in which chapter where? Okay. Okay, that's right. This is the one reason why Revelation is so awesome. And one of the things I wanted to do for you was to give you this. I'm going to try to do this for you right now. Let's do it because I think it's really good. What we have is this timeline, right? We know that Daniel covers, I'm going to use, I'm going to use, let me use blue for Daniel. Daniel covers a time frame. Let me get the rest of my markers in here. We have this. We have the church. We have the the sec the uh, second temple, right? That is destroyed in seventy A.D. Correct. Um, we had the first temple. This is in the days of Ezekiel, and he's, so he's, we had um, uh, one, two, three, three sieges. This is the last one. They destroyed this temple, and that's in uh, 586, right? Okay, this one starts in 605 with Daniel, right? Here's where Ezekiel goes into his ta- captivity. This is the date I always forget, 570, somebody help me again. Why can't I? Oh, 597. I got it. I wrote it on my chart. I should have known that I did that. That was smart of me. (laughs) I always forget the 597. I think it's because we did the 592 at the beginning of the writing of this book, correct? So we know he went into captivity in 597, but his book begins right here, right, of Ezekiel. He starts to write five years into his captivity. Okay, so Daniel covers from here. His word comes all the way here until this. He skips the church age. Then he covers this time here and takes us just a little bit into the the very beginning of that time of that uh, temple. So the blue is um, Daniel, the book of Daniel. Okay. All right, now I'm going to give you green, and that's going to be Ezekiel. This is kind of interesting just to look at it this way, to see how God did this. Ezekiel, he covers from, basically he does take you back to when he goes to his captivity in sort, but he starts in 592. He covers the fall of that temple, then he he kind of he stops there 
because you're, you're at that place where he says, the, the one chapter that, that says it's a year past, and he gets the report of the fall of the temple, right? And then he starts talking about all these things that are going to happen in the future. So then he goes down here, and he picks up in the sixth bowl with some of his information, and he goes into the millennial reign up to the very end. And he goes just a tiny bit into the, the next part, into the, where he, he, there's an inference about the new heaven and the new earth because he talks about the, the temple and the, or the, the, um, the sixth and seventh bowl and Christ's temple is what he covers, okay? So, then, so that's Ezekiel. Then we have uh, Revelation. Is a Revelation. from John who gives us that and John covers this information he he starts revelation with the seven churches right so we get the church age right and he covers all of this period here of all these bowls and he does just a tiny bit into the beginning of that first that next kingdom so look at how that yeah, and then he does go to the, you're right, sorry, I should put that on there, right? He talks about, in Revelation, the judgment and the new heaven and the new earth to the end. He doesn't give us a lot of detail on this, but who does? Ezekiel. Isn't that kind of cool looking at it that way? I did that for myself at home and went, that's really cool. Look at that. That's all of history laid out with those three books. Write it down. <laughs> I can't send this. This one I can't send. I'm sorry. The, the, the bad thing about doing chart uh, timelines with you all on the board, and I love doing them because I think the visualization is hugely important. It really, For me personally, I learn best with a visualization like this. All of a sudden, things that didn't quite fit where I thought they needed to, all of a sudden now I see them. Yes. That's true. You could. <laughs> Should I, I know. You're right about that. But, but just at this moment, what do you observe by looking at these three writers, Daniel, Ezekiel, and John's revelation? What do you see? God has covered all of history for us. He starts with the Babylonian era when Daniel has gone into his captivity. We see the, the first temple. We see the second temple. We see the future temple. Right? The return of that third... Oh, I should have written that one on there. I didn't. Um, the kingdom. And here's a, another temple. Millennial temple. And we haven't... I mean, we, we don't have it on here, but we know there's going to be some sort of a temple as well during these seven years that's going to take place. We know that from Revelation, from that account. There's some kind of a little temple of some sort and from Daniel because Daniel tells us particularly Daniel and then and we know um, in Revelation and Matthew covers it as well Matthew speaks about an abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet and he ties it back to make to make sure that we understand that this what which Daniel spoke of in his prophetic word in in Daniel 9 verses 24 to 27 he gave an entire agenda that God says very specifically God has decreed this and we talked about that word decree what does decree mean 
It's absolutely, and it gets irrevocable, right? So a decree that's done by a king, is, it can't be changed, it can't be altered. And so God has decreed 70 years for Israel. The first 69 completed at the, at the time frame here when the second temple fell, according, according to that. Then there's a gap in history. What do we call this gap? The church age. Then he picks up after that when he starts to work with Dan with uh, Israel again, which starts at where you see the blue line, and he co- and he goes forward with it. So it's really exciting when you kind of do it this way, just to see where it all fits in things. And if you wanted to, you could go back into Daniel and add your head and your arms and your chest and your belly and your thighs of that statue, right? And then the great stone who becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth, which is God's kingdom. That stone that crushes that statue. All right. Yes? Yes. We don't, and we have no details on it. What we do know is that it is erected by the Jews because they make a covenant with the Antichrist the Antichrist and his coalition of kings at that time allow them the privilege to go and give sacrifices and grain offerings. Yes, it will. It'll be during, I just put it in the middle, meaning we don't know at what point it goes up. We just know that there's a, it should probably go up almost right away at the beginning. You want me to put it there instead? Would that be better for you? I can put it over here. Yeah, because there's three and a half years, and then there's the abomination of desolation that occurs right here. The, when, the, when the treaty is broken between Antichrist and, and uh, Israel at that time. Yes, Debbie. Yes. How do you know that's a different temple, Debbie? I am so proud of you. You can actually argue that point now with, not argue, but I mean, uh, give apologetic statements, right? Because isn't that what we're here to do? We want to get our apologetics lined up so that if somebody asks you, you can defend why you know that temple is not the same one. And, you know, when we all make our trips to Israel and we go and we see the Eastern Gate and it's all blocked up and we're going, oh, look at there, it's blocked up just like the Ezekiel says. Oops, what do we now know? different temple (laughs) right because that temple different land different different locations this is exactly right and last week we kind of went through and we made the list of some of our apologetic points as to why we know the temple that Ezekiel is describing in chapters 40 to 48 is not a temple that we've ever seen on the earth before yes boy it nails it down. That's exactly right. And Israel is back on its land, and Israel is doing all these things. And who gets to enter into this temple? Yeah, but do you remember some of the, the, the um, qualifications? What would disqualify someone to be able to go in there? What, who doesn't get to go in there? Anyone who will profane it, anyone who will, who will um, defile it in any way. They're not allowed to go in there, right? So only those who honor the Lord are allowed in this temple. He said, this temple you will not profane. What had they done to the previous temples before? 
They profaned them right and left. They did everything wrong that they can do wrong. They allowed people in there that weren't supposed to be in there. They allowed people to rule over it that shouldn't have. Their own priests were defiling things. They were giving the sacrifices incorrectly. They were cheating the people. They weren't, you know, they were, they were putting rules upon. In the days of Jesus, he talked about calling them broods of vipers, right? You hypocrites. Because they would put these extra rules on top of the things that God had set out as statutes, as heavy burdens to the people. Those things are not going to happen in this new millennial temple. In this temple, God says uh, justice and righteousness will be done. Right? Isn't that what we just learned in Ezekiel? He says in this temple, there are going to be two things. He says equal, uh, fair balances. Right? And then he says, righteous, justice and righteousness will be done in this temple, period. There will be a separation between the holy and the, pro- and the common. There will not be this um, flamboyant or flippant attitude that people have about just approaching God any old way they want. It will be done God's way. God wants to pr- impress upon us during that thousand-year reign that, that I am holy and you are not. And you will approach me the way I ask you to because I am God. Right? It's like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I want him to hurry. Please come, Lord. Okay, now what I want to do. Okay, so we've kind of done a timeline. We've seen how these three books fit together, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, which I thought was wow to me. I just loved that because I went, oh, that is so cool. Those three books alone. Now you know which three books give you all of history. Okay? Those three major prophets. Um, what we want to do now is go through and look at our segment divisions, uh, the flow of the thought of this book. We know the first three chapters cover what? Because now pull out your, I hope you, I hope I encouraged you last week in your doing of this. Pull out your Ezekiel at a glance chart. You have one, right? Elizabeth, you're not looking real confident, dear. (laughs) She's looking at me like, are you crazy? (laughs) But I can tell you, this is going to be the most valuable tool in your box. Um, Lois, oh, she's not here, but yes, yes, I will ask Lois to send this out to you all this week with your thing. Um, But not because mine is so perfect and great. I do want you to know it's a work in progress still. This is my first time through Ezekiel, so I'm learning just like you guys are. But I think it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, and if there's anything you want to change, you change it, right? Okay. All right. So, but but I do think we got the chunky blocks, and I think we're all in agreement on where these divisions should should come. So, looking at your observation, Ezekiel at a glance chart. Tell me what your segment divisions are for this book. Chapters one through three cover what? His first vision and and Ezekiel's call, right? So we're going to say Ezekiel's call. He was called really by being given a vision and shown the things that he needed needed to, what is the right word, propel him or to motivate him, correct? And so God gave him a vision of his glory and a vision of those cherubim. To, to validate so he understood what he was seeing was the glory of the Lord. Because if he had just shown him the glory of the Lord without the cherubim, he may not have known what he was looking at. 
So he gave him something known so that the unknown would be made clear. Isn't that cool? I love it when he does that. Okay, so Ezekiel's call as prophet and watchman. And then everything else that follows that is what he's supposed to be telling the people, right? Everything else is his message to the people from God. So in 4 to 24, what was Ezekiel prophesying? Yeah. Prophesy judgment on who? Uh, No, the first part of the book is on who? On Israel, Jerusalem, on Israel and, and Judah, or on Jerusalem, rather. Judgment of Israel, right? Okay, then 25 to 32 is also judgment, but this time it's who? What does that show you about our God right here? Does anybody get out of, of this accountability with God in how they are to relate to God even though the people of the ancient days were not God's called out people yet God still held them accountable for either receiving or rejecting him did they did he not could the people of that era before God um, before Christ before the church and the and the blending between and the barrier walls being broken down could any nation of that day could they have become an ally to Israel and blessed then of God. What did God say to Abraham in his first promised him? They will be blessed because of you speaking of the coming Messiah and that's exactly right. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So do we see that actually going on right here? We still see it going on, right. But definitely in the literary flow of this book, what we're seeing is God says, Israel, I wanted to bless you, but you you defiled me, you rejected my word, you didn't follow my statutes, so now I'm going to have to judge you. So he judges his own people, but then he also does what? He judges the nations. Even though they were not called out to be his people, they're held accountable for not being a blessing to Israel. And by being a blessing to Israel, what are they actually, would they actually have been doing as a nation? An act of faith, believing God, believing the, the God of Israel was who he said he was and right. And bowing their knee to that really in a form of worship. Because what we know is obedience to God is worship, right? So the nations could have been worshipers of God, by blessing Israel, but they didn't. Instead, a, a lot of the um, storylines that we looked at, what we saw is uh, those other nations doing is when Israel was down, what did they do? They kicked them. They rubbed salt in the wound. And they said, ooh, yay, they're, they're knocked down. Tyre, king of Tyre, I will now do this and this and this because there's a window of opportunity here for me, right? So they actually took advantage of Israel at the time when God was judging them. And then God turned around and said, look out, Tyre, I'm, I'm going to judge you next, right? So we saw prophesy, he prophesied judgment against Israel, prophesied judgment against the nations, both of them for the same things, even though Israel was a selective nation. I think that's an important thing to, to really get clearly in your heads because so often people are confused about Israel's role as God's people, what 
is why is this nation a distinctive nation and a special called out people? And somehow we have misconveyed a message to the to even the church that that they get special privileges just because they are God's people as Israel. But is that true? Does God still hold them accountable? Yes. Yeah, individually and as a nation. Okay. Yeah, that's nations. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Yeah, it is an S at the end, nations. Yeah, yeah, nations. The judgment of nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. There is an S on there. I'll make it better. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, Yin Yin. I didn't mean to confuse you. Okay, 33 to 39. The next segment, is, he makes a switch. First he talks about these judgments of these two, and then he kind of makes a turn. It's a subtle turn at first, but then it becomes more profound. What does he do there in that next segment? What is he having them prophesy? Yes, is a prophecy of hope to... to my people Israel. He's telling his people Israel, I, yes, I have judged you, but I'm telling you, uh, I am going to do these certain things for you. Does he say in there why he's going to do it? That's right, to vindicate his soul. Not because they're so good, not because they're deserving, but because God is going to vindicate his holy name. Because what has God said about Israel as a nation that he was going to do for them? All by grace, Right? Pardon? Yeah. I'm going to assume, and it all goes back to which covenant? Abrahamic covenant. Because God made a promise through Abraham that, I, that he would create a nation. He would put them on the land. He would give them a dis- designated land mass. And that he would make of them a great nation. And through that nation would rise up who? The seed. And the seed is? Jesus. We see that through commentary in Galatians chapter 3. It literally says in Galatians chapter 3 that God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham. And when Abraham believed God, then it was reckoned to him as righteousness. By faith he entered, and that was the day of his salvation, that day when he believed God. So we see in 33 to 39, it's prophecy again. Uh, to prophesy uh, hope to my people, Israel. My nation, Israel, if you wanted to put it that way. And then once he gives them this hope, he speaks about a hope that's going to happen because he's going to do it. In there, he talks about um, the dry bones coming to life. How do the dry bones come to life? He breathes life into them and gives them what? A new heart and his spirit. So when God gives them this kind of life, what kind of life are we talking about? Spiritual life, eternal life, right? So so the hope that he's given to Israel is that one day they're going to be a nation who are believers collectively, right? And therefore then he's going to then place them on their land and then do, do for them exactly what, and fulfill for them exactly what he said. And in doing so, he vindicates his holy name. Because he had to take them off the land because they were so disobedient. 
they were profaning him so badly. So he wasn't able to do back then in history what he is now going to do for him, them at the end of the age. Okay? And so now once, they're, once they become his people and they have his spirit, then what's he going to give them? What does he say to prophesy next? Uh-huh. A future temple. Now, just by observation, if you wanted to put all of this information on a timeline, how would it go? How would I describe it to me? Does he jump around or is he linear? He's linear. He starts at the time when he calls Ezekiel, he talks about judgment talks about judgment of the nations. He talks about him giving them his spirit. And he talks about this new temple then that's going to be put in place. Do you see it? So it's all linear. Would you say that knowing that is helpful when you look at things like that real controversial one about Gog and Magog? That that's not a war that happened back in history during the days of judgment, but that's something that's going to happen down here at the end as he's about to put them on their land. Right? Because that, that war is, is given to them in the time of hope for my people. Did you notice? Let's go back and look at that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, they're going to be hiding in the wilderness for three and a half years. And when... Oh, will there be Jews anywhere else on the earth? That I don't know. I think that the scriptures seem to imply that they are gathered. So I don't know if every single one is. I know that there's a point in Revelation that talks about, I will gather my elect from the four winds. Remember the angels come and they gather their elect from the four winds. So I would assume that if there's any stragglers out there, that at that point when Jesus returns, they're called in. But that's a good question. I hadn't thought of that one. Oh, no. The vast majority of Israel will be there, and the reason will be because of the intense persecution of those, those end days. They will flee because they have to. It's going to be ten times worse. The scripture in Revelation and in Daniel both say it's going to be a time of trouble like has never been seen on the earth before, ever. The, the, the whole seven years, actually, but definitely the last three and a half. This time, Daniel's 70th week is called a time of tribulation. That's how we ended up calling this whole thing tribulation, when actually the wrath of God is only these last three and a half. But Daniel's 70th week is a time when God is going to purge and refine Israel and fulfill in them what he promised them, which was to put them on the land with a new heart, with his spirit in it. And they will be his people, and he will be their God. That's right. During the three and a half years, what Matthew twenty four fifteen tells us is that when they see the abomination of desolation, uh, which is the Antichrist sitting sitting down in the temple and 
claiming himself to be God. That's our Thessalonians study, which will follow Acts, I think. Right? Is that correct? I don't remember. But anyway, yeah, I think it is. So we're going to go there after we do Acts. Um, But uh, when that occurs, these people living in Judea, Jesus tells them, flee to the wilderness. And Revelation tells us that they have a place that's been prepared for them by God. That's what we've talked about, potentially maybe it being a place called Petra that we know of today. Yeah, yeah, right. And if not Petra, it's close. But what we know is later, in Ze- I think it was Isaiah, that uh, Jesus, when he first returns to rescue them from this tribulation time, he comes first to Basra, which is near Petra, which is near Jordan, Edom, Esau, Mount Seir, the hills of all those people. And he says his knife or his sword is satiated. Is that the right word? Satiated. Satiated. Satiated with the blood of the people. And that's that one war. Now we're back to the war. Let's go back to the war. Is that the war where the blood will come up from the Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. He starts there at Basra, and it works his way up to Jerusalem where he rescues Jerusalem. His feet stand on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two, and these great earthquakes are taking place at that time, and the land gets transformed topographically and makes space for that new temple that there's no space for right now, but there will be at that time because God will make it. Isn't that cool? Okay, go to chapter 38 and 39 of your Ezekiel. Let's go back and just look at that real quick. I hope this is being helpful to you to see the whole flow of this, how this, all these pieces fit together kind of overlapping with one another. So it's like a puzzle. You just have to put all the pieces in. But in chapter, the reason I wanted to point this out is because we know that this war in chapter 38 and 39 about Gog and Magog, that's re- referenced there about Gog, rather it's called it Gog and it, it mentions other, uh, I can't remember what the others were. Let me look here. I mean, yeah, and it's like Tubal and all these other people are mentioned there too. Chapter 38, I'm going to go back. 38 and 39, I will bring Gog against Israel, right? In chapter 38, correct? Then what happens in 39? Gog falls, but what happens to Israel? She's restored. And then in chapter 40, what do you see after she's restored? The temple. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing the linear flow of thought here? That that's why 38 and 39, that war is speaking of that war, which happens right here on the timeline. Chapter 38 and 39 is this war, because then the next thing is this temple that comes up in the, on the land. Yes. Yep. Yes, that's right, and we know it couldn't have happened anywhere else in history because what follows it is, he says, and my holy name will also be made known before the whole nations. All the nations of the earth will see my name is holy and that I've done exactly what I said I would do. Do we see any of those nations around the world, even America for that matter, do we see that this is a reality yet? Has it ever happened in history where the nations have said, oh, God is holy. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. No. 
It has not happened yet. And if you just look, if you're looking at this from literary perspective only, just as a logical literary flow of a historical record, you start back here during the days of Ezekiel, you, pr you progressively move forward until you hit this time where he starts speaking about the hope. The very last two chapters of that hope is this war, and then you enter into that new temple where he has, been, he has vindicated his holy name. Do you see it? Isn't that exciting? So chapter 38 and 39 should be very well put to bed at this point just by looking at the linear flow of thought, of historical unfolding of events. And one of the things I did for you and sent out to you in my chart was compare what this war in chapter 38 and 39, how it compares with what's taught in Revelation. There are so many matching points, and the most profound one to me was the birds. That one really nailed it in there. It was like, oh, yeah, that can't, that, where else has that ever happened in history, right? Revelation describes it greatly that Jesus returns, he has this great war, and the birds of the air are called for this great supper of God, which we all went yuck when we studied Revelation. We're like, ooh, that's not a good thing. Remember that, Brenda? <laughs> yeah, I do too. Your nose is wrinkling. I'm going, yeah, I remember it. Well, then here it is in Ezekiel. Again, I've never seen it anywhere else in Scripture. And I went, oh, my gosh, that's, just, that's exactly what happens. See there, the birds, um, uh, it will give as food to every kind of predatory uh, bird and beast of the field. And you will fall in the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety. And they will know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. So then the very next chapter opens with the temple. Okay, so that helps us, I think, greatly to see how Ezekiel itself, which should be real helpful to you in the future. From this point forward, you might want to make yourself a note at the beginning of your Ezekiel um, uh, scriptures in your Bible that it's linear, that it starts at the beginning and it progressively moves straight through, that it does not jump around in history. It is a progressive unfolding of history. Okay? I think that's awesome. It helped me a whole lot. As soon as I realized that and, uh, and got it all, you know, because the arguments come in right away. Well, well, what war is this? Well, where do you, where do you think this happened? Well, how do you know that happened then? Well, you have to look at the, the results of the war. What happens as a result of this war, right? One of the things that I remembered looking at when I was trying to iron it out for myself, too, was the fact that the end of, of this war, they enter into that millennial kingdom time, and God is, is vindicated. And this never happened in history. So you cannot put this war anywhere else on a timeline, right? The logic is it would not be there. Okay, now, hold on, let me see if I can find, I've got so many, I've got too many notes, too many charts to cover with you guys. Where is my, hold on, I've lost my other chart. Did I lay it down somewhere? Okay, hold on, one sec. Take a breather <laughs> while I find my chart, my teaching chart. Did it fall down in here maybe? Oh, here it is right in front of my face. I got too many things going up here. Okay, so now it's a, so the conclusion is a linear, uh, let's see, I did a linear flow of thought. It does this, okay? Um, 
tons of details also. Let's talk about the other thing, about insights about this literary work. Would you say it's factual or more imagery? Even though we know there's visions in there, is this about imagery or is this about factual? It's very factual. Now, give me some of your apologetics that you would give to somebody if they wanted to say, no, 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 that's all imagery because he's having visions. There you go. There's too many details, this many feet, this many inches, this high, this short, this wide, this whatever, right? And and north, south, east, west, very specific details. Anything else? Okay, in the exact square. Do you think in a vision they would need to be that specific otherwise? No, they wouldn't. I mean, what would be the point to be that specific? And this angel comes to take him, and he measures things right before his eyes. And and then also, did you notice the angel even identifies things? One of the things he said to Ezekiel that didn't pop out to me the first time, but when he turns to him and says, this is the holy sanctuary. Because apparently it looks enough different that he had to have it identified for him. What would be one of the distinctive differences between the old temple and the new temple? The veil is missing. It's now got a door. And he measured the door, and it said he entered in, and he measured the door of the whole, of that ho- most holy place. And the angel turned to him and said, basically, Ezekiel, this is the most holy place. So he identified it for him. It was very distinctively different. Okay, um, what else that would be apologetics for you to say this is distinctive? And it's, and it's literal. Mm-hmm. And, and there you go. Historical, in, throughout this whole book, he gives actual historical events, which we can go back, and even outside of biblical accounts, we can find records of these historical things occurring, correct? Right. So there's definite dates, and there's definite people. Also, specific names of specific people who are given, which we can historically go back and look for and find, right? Not only in the Bible, but also in the other kinds of chronicles that are given throughout history. Um, uh, I think about Zadok, for instance, too. He's named by name in that divinic line. So there's also things that are mentioned that are are absolutes in the... the, um, uh, in the Jewish system, you know, that you, that they're obviously speaking of a literal thing, right? A truth, right? There's a good one. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And when you go in and you look up Moab and Edom and um, uh, Egypt, and I mean, th- and these are literal places, right? With real ki- and the king of Tyre, and there's a literal place, and there was a king of Tyre. So these are historical things. So the, the thing about uh, uh, Ezekiel, where you would be able to very easily defend that this is a historical record or all these facts all these historical references, all these specific names of nations, all these specific names of people that have been documented throughout history that prove that it's a literal 
thing, correct? So what happens then when you get to the end time temple? Can you switch gears and say, oh, but that's imagery? Would you be, would you be holding to an integrity line if you said, oh, yeah, factual, 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 factual? No, that's imagery. Can you do that with integrity as an observer of a literary piece of work? No, and when you get here and it talks about this temple, we again have all those specific me- measurements. We have specific people groups like, like Zadok and the, Aaron, uh, the, the lineage of Aaron, the Levites, all mentioned in there, who are literal people that you can go back in, hi- in history and, and check out. And by the way, P.S., what's the distinctiveness of this temple compared to the other when you talk about Zadok and the Levitical line? How do you know it's different from what the other temples were? What has happened to Zadok in this new temple that was not true back in these temples? That's right. He was given a promotion. The other Levitical uh, priests, although they were not removed, and why were they not removed as a, as a judgment? Because God made a covenant to them that they would have a perpetual priesthood. So God honored that, but he reduced their, their position. And, and I tell you what, if this is not a, a kind of, you know, for those of us who, who look at eventual judgment before Christ's um, uh, judgment seat, that Bema seat we call it, where our works are judged and what comes through the fire then we're rewarded for, this is a beautiful demonstration of that where the Levitical line of the, these Levites, and, and not just back here, but they did it again here too. They kept def, um, uh, profaning God's name and violating their oath of office, so to speak, right? So that now when they come into this new millennial temple, God says, no, you don't get to have that anymore. You've, that was burned up. You lost that reward. I'm going to demote you. I will still fulfill my promise to you, and you will still get to have the Levitical priesthood that is perpetual, but you're not going to get to serve before me. I'm going to promote those who among you were faithful, and that's the house of the sons of Zadok. And they will be uh, promoted, and they will serve before me. So there's a beautiful demonstration for you and I. Would you say there's a great deal of application in that for what we're doing in our lives today, whatever it is? Is it not a good lesson to say, ooh, <laughs> I guess I better be faithful to honor God in the things that I do, whatever it is, right? All right. Pardon? Yes. All right, so now, now let's go on and look at, okay, so we've looked at, it's a factual historical record. It's, it's linear flow of thought. It's factual uh, and literal history okay so we know it's going to happen and also it fulfills do you think that so far we've seen that that as God fulfills these things he this author has shown us and that that then you will know I am the Lord has that been accomplished through what he's shown us through these segment divisions that the Lord when he fulfills it when he prophesied a judgment against Israel and then as things went by and then they started to happen did that prove that God's word was true and that God did exactly as he said? And that when he did this, then you know that I am the Lord? 
Absolutely. Okay, so we see factual and literal, and then we also see that um, it's a historical record. All right, now, uh, and then what we did after that was we, we meshed uh, the three uh, prophets to a full timeline. Mm. Got to have my... So that's what we've done so far today with Daniel, Ezekiel, and John's vision, John's revelation. Actually, it's Jesus' revelation through to John, but that's being technical. <laughs> okay, now, um, so that gives us this flow of thought, and we can see how, how the book flows out. Now, let's do very quickly. We've only got about 10 or 15 minutes, but I don't think we need much more than that. Let's talk about our book, our chapter things for these closing couple of chapters. Just so we can say we actually did go through the whole book. <laughs> and we are ready to cover 47 and 48. So flip over to 47 and tell me what you saw going on in chapter 47. What is your, how did you title chapter 47? I think this is. Yes. Very good. So it's talking about there's a uh, the the uh, living water. I just put that extra adjective in there. The living water and boundaries for the land, right? Land boundaries, however you want to say that. Now, we can go through and sub break this down into segments what do you see in like in 1 through 12 he's talking about that living water did you notice how it gave you a progression of of events how it starts out at the at yes it starts out at the temple with the trickle gets bigger how many of you are on facebook and might have access to my page Okay, I posted a visualization of, of, a, of a tour through this temple, and it shows that, that river coming out, shows all the measurements of the walls, really, really good. And it turns out, after I got it, it's the same one uh, that, it's the same author that, of that book that I shared with you a couple weeks ago. I didn't know that until after, one of my other teaching friends, um, um, Cheryl Matthews sent me the link. Well, after I watched it, I went, oh, that's the one that Celeste just showed me. I had just been at Celeste's house, and we had looked at it, and she was going to try to burn it onto a DVD so I could show it in class. Apparently, that didn't work out. I don't know how to purchase this one. I would, I'm still working on trying to find it. I don't even know if it's out on DVD, but it is online. So what I will do is I will go in and send the link to Lois. When she sends out my chart, it'll give you the link for those of you who can't get to my page. Otherwise, go to my Facebook page and click on it, and you can watch it. I would suggest you go into it and get onto the YouTube version because then you'll get it full screen, and you'll get a better visual of it. But you get a a literal visual walk through the whole temple as it's recorded in, in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. Uh, Ezekiel's temple. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's Katie Dalvey Phillips is my page name. 
D-A-L-V-E, which is my maiden name, and then Phillips, okay? And um, if not, I think I have Kelly already on my, I'll find you. I'll look for you, Eileen, okay? All right. All right, so we see the living water flowing. It starts out as a trickle. Then the next three verses, three to six, the trickle becomes a river. And then from seven to eight, we see that it becomes like a river in a river bank, and it hits the sea. And then what happens to the sea? becomes fresh water. And when we went to Israel, I remember we talked about this, and I actually got on, when I was on the bus ride, I opened the, the scripture. Do you remember this, Don? And, and I read that verse out of Ezekiel. At the time, I did not have the point of reference I do now. I wish I did. I'd have probably been preaching, though. It's probably a good thing I didn't know. But, but it talks about that, that sea. Do you know which sea it is? It's the Dead Sea. And it says about the Dead Sea, what's going to happen to it? It's going to become a fisherman's paradise. Right now, it is, it, as it says, it's dead pretty much. I mean, nothing lives in there. A lot of salt. Now, that was interesting too. Did you not see? It talked about the sea. It says, talks about the river giving life to fish and to trees, the trees that will run on both sides of it. And then it says... Um, uh, it makes the Dead Sea become fresh water. And then what happens to part of the area? Stay salty for salt. I just love that. It's like they have a design purpose. They will stay salty. And yet he's going to allow the rest to become fresh water and produce life-giving water where people will fish from it and the trees will bear fruit because of it. And Israel, who is desperate for water always... This is going to be a refreshing living water, it's referred to. Did you notice how, how often that keyword kept coming up on that page, life and living, yes. if you marked them? Okay. And now we got one more insight when we ran over to Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 11. What did we see about that living water here? This one, the water run, in Ezekiel, he talks about the water running which direction? East, right? Then Zechariah tells us, it goes east and west. So it covers both directions, going to the Dead Sea and going to the Mediterranean Sea. Isn't that cool? Now, uh, Zechariah does not say he makes the Mediterranean Sea fresh. But the Dead Sea, which is a smaller body of water, becomes fresh water. Isn't that cool? Okay, so that's the first 12 verses. 1 to 12 is about the living water. And it gives life. Fish and trees, right, are the couple of things that are mentioned. Now we start in 13, and we go 13 to uh, 23, and that's to all the way to the end. Now it's talking about what subject? Yeah, the boundaries set for the land as inheritance. Okay, so uh, we have the living water and the boundaries. That's the major theme. This one talks about the living water. This one talks about the boundaries. Now, who sets the boundaries? Who has predetermined this? By the Lord. I love that. Boundaries are set by the Lord as inheritance. So he just kind of gives some land measurements, doesn't he? He uh, Beyond that, he doesn't say who gets what. He just talks about the land in general. He gives the bigger picture, right? So big picture right? Now what happens in the next chapter? D. 
details. Isn't that just like God to do it that way? He always does it like that. It's amazing to me. So in chapter 48 now, where he's given us the big picture in 47, down 48, he goes down to tell us what? How did you title this one? Mm-hmm. Designated land allotments is how I titled it. And then he says in 1 to 7, what? What does he tell you about there? The first seven tribes, right? And where are they? Given north of Temple, right? Okay, and then um, then the next one is 8 to 22, and it talks about what? The holy allotment. Now, this is cool because it breaks down into three parts. I think it's kind of cool. It's actually four if you want to really get technical. But the first part is about the temple. The next part is for what? The, the city. And then uh, the city. And then the last one is the prince. Right? Okay. Then the next segment is uh, 23 to 29. And that one is allotments to who? So it's another five tribes, right? And they are south. They're given the land south of the temple. And then the very last one, I think it's kind of interesting too. It talks about um, these gates also. Besides the tribes, it also talks about the gates. It really has two subjects in there, those other five tribes and then the gates. And what do you learn about the gates again? Who are they named for? Named for the 12 tribes. On the foundation of the... Of the Right, it doesn't. But it's very cool because it's still, sh- it, what he does is he goes back. In the, in the one on the, um, in the heavenly city, I'm trying to remember if there was Dan is mentioned there. Anyway, yeah. But that's a different time, right? We're talking about the millennial here. God in the next Revelation one at the end of Revelation, that's talking about the heavenly one. So just keep that in mind. Here he honors Dan, but later I think, I'm not sure if Dan's in there, I can't remember. But anyway, that, that'll be something we'll look at when we study that, hopefully, if we ever get to. What is the name of the city? I liked that one. The Lord is there. Okay, so the city name, the Lord is there. From that day forward, it's going to be called The Lord is There. That was in 4835. Okay, now we have like about two minutes. If you have anything specific you need me to hit on, I have tons more I can cover. But I'm, I mean, I'm at a good place where I think I've, I've given you the big, the big linear thing. We see the outline of it. We see the author's purpose. We see those last two closing chapters. We see how these three prophets fit together in the full story as far as giving you the whole history of what God's plan is. Does the, does the, the sun 
two portions. I don't know. I didn't take the time to really research it. I saw that. It, it was a question I had in my mind, too, but I didn't have the time to research. Did, what, did you do any research on it either? I didn't either. Did anybody do that thing about Joseph and the two portions and g- dig into that more? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, two choices was uh, portions. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. That's as much as I know. I would have to spend, you know, a few hours, and I'd get it ironed out, but it would take some time. So that's a good job for you, Susan. Let us report back to us, would you? (laughs) Um, The temple has never existed One of the things that I've learned when I watched that walkthrough on the video, this temple that Ezekiel describes is 36 times larger than any previous temple. 36 times larger. Much, much bigger. Um, Yeah. But all, everything else, the layout and how, and which is also shows you that, the, that all these nations are going to actually be coming and utilizing this, where before the temple was really just for Israel, right? Now it's going to be for the nations, so it's got to be larger. Uh, the Le- Levitical priesthood has been changed up. The massive size of the landmass and the topographical description is different. Um, This temple follows all other historical events that are listed, specific wars, specific judgments of specific nations. One of the things is Edom and Mount Seir, which has not been totally done yet. It will be. Specific uh, fulfillments to Israel, which are only now in history beginning to show signs uh, of. One of the things that that was interesting, it talks about Israel being brought back to its land, and we talk about that being the right now. Although we do see God calling them back and, uh, and accumulating them, this is not the dry bones yet, because that happens at the end. And the other thing is this, what happens to Israel when, they, when the abomination of uh, desolation happens? They flee. They leave their land again. This promise is that once they're brought back and this, this spirit is given to them, they never leave again. So even though we do see Israel coming back right now, this is still just the beginning of it. It's not, that the, it's not Ezekiel 36 fulfilled yet, even though it looks like it's getting close to being there. But Israel will flee her land again during that, the days of tribulation, right? Um, we know that as uh, a couple of you have mentioned God's glory is going to dwell there. His very feet, the soles of his feet will be there. That's very distinctive. Not, by the way, not Shekinah glory cloud is mentioned when it talks about his glory is there. It's the soles of his feet. That's very distinctive from the Old Testament where the Shekinah glory was present. This time it doesn't say in a cloud or in a mist. This time it says soles of his feet will be there. That's distinctive. Um, all right. I think that covers some of some of my major points. Boy, 